Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. I'm Sarah Ivory, your host. Today, doubt, double identity, and baseball. The novelist Joshua Ferris made a splash in 2007 with his debut, Then We Came to the End. The book was a hilarious, biting satire about workers in a collapsing ad agency in Chicago at the end of the dot-com era. It won awards, and it made it onto several year-end best-of lists. Ferris followed that book up with The Unnamed, a somewhat darker novel about a Manhattan lawyer who just wants to walk. It's an urge he can't resist, and it's an urge that undoes his life. Now Ferris has a new story to tell. The novel is called To Rise Again at a Decent Hour. It takes on existential dread, what it means to be a Jew, the Red Sox, dentistry, and a host of other topics. Today, Joshua Ferris joins us in the studio to talk about it all. Josh Ferris, welcome to Box Tablet. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So the hero or antihero in your novel, To Rise Again at a Decent Hour, is Paul O'Rourke. I'd love it for you to tell our readers a little bit about him. Well, he's a dentist. He's 40 years old, and he has all of the material comfort and trappings that he could want. But he's at great odds with the city and uh, with his patients who refuse to floss and with his employees who refuse to go along with his his uh, prescriptions and kind of with the universe as a whole. Uh, he's sort of raised both fists at the universe. I would say... He is also a loner. He can be really snide sometimes. Uh, I wonder, what made you want to write about a guy like Paul who doesn't seem on the face of it to be that likable? I think likability is kind of a ruinous tendency, um, both in fiction and in other narrative forms. I, I don't find it a terribly compelling quality in fictional characters, Um so I was never really concerned about likability. What I was concerned with, I think, was giving, was endowing uh, a person with f- gr- great exaggerated uh, characteristics that sort of mirror mine in a, to a much greater degree. So the, the ways in which he uh, fights practically everything, um, who, he, can, he can find no solace, even in the small things, really. And he's just kind of a bundle of contradictions. I wanted to see how that person uh, would react to uh, stolen identity and to a, a pursuit, of, a religious pursuit, when he was really basically just sort of an atheist. Before we get to the question of his atheism and religion, I want to ask you, what made you want to make him a dentist? I mean, dentists are probably among the most reviled professionals in the medical field. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I love my dentist, but that's true. Well, everybody has a, I think everybody has a dent, dentist story and it's either for good or for ill, you know, like sometimes my dentist saved my life. There are the, my dentist saved my life stories. And then there's the, the dentist almost killed me story. They play a pretty important role in our, in our lives. I mean, they're, they're, they're about good health and extending life and making you uh, feel good and and eat well and look good and all these things and I find that to be so terribly important. But at the same time, they're they're just sort of a denigrated bunch. Um, they're systematically ignored. Their suggestions are, um, as I say in the book, sort of a col- at best a colossal inconvenience. You know, did you have to do a lot of research into dentistry because it does seem quite uh, graphic at times. 
Yeah, I had to do a lot. Of, <laughs> I tell you what, I watched too many YouTube clips of teeth being pulled and bad things. So you can find a lot of stuff on YouTube. But yeah, I had the, there's a there's a small Oxford a book that's that's um, published by Oxford, the Oxford Press, and it's a terrific like clinical guide to certain diseases and things like that. And then I read um, a couple of books, like the the Extreme Makeover Dentist guy has a book out, and he's terrific because he you know, he really captures what it's like to help somebody who looks terrible because of their teeth and how much sadness they carry around with them for years and years until they go in and they get their teeth fixed and then they really feel like they've they've been given a new life and you really recognize this the weird relationship between vanity or how you look and your mental health so i was really compelled by that he so he wrote a good book so yeah i did a lot of research one day paul has this patient who just as he's running out of the office turns to paul and he says I'm an ohm, and so are you. I'd love for you to tell our listeners what is an ohm. Who is an ohm? So an ohm. This is a really tough question to answer because it's it's basically something I invented. Um, An ohm is a descendant of a nomadic tribe of people that I found in the Hebrew Bible, and then sort of, you know, while they are descendant, they're sort of divorced from that group, and have followed a doctrine of doubt for their entirety for the entirety of their existence so they actively doubt god which creates a whole lot of contradictions and sort of intellectual problems and now that they've come down through the ages they've been so systematically persecuted and driven underground that the question that the book asks is are they real or not so i've borrowed and stolen a whole bunch from Judaism, from the history of Judaism, from some of the theology, um, and certainly the origins, which go back to the Hebrew Bible, in order to present Paul O'Rourke with a group that he might belong to. So when somebody suggests to him that he's a member of a small, unknown, persecuted group, he sort of sees the absurdity behind it, the unlikeliness of it, but also really he's very compelled by the notion that maybe he too belongs to a group that mirrors and echoes these other groups that he's wanted to belong to, but because of a lack of birthright or overeager spirit or whatever he's been excluded from. So the alms really represent an opportunity for him to become basically a Jew, um, and to enjoy the the community uh, that he sees Judaism providing for the Jews in the book. How did you come up with this idea of wanting to create this whole mythology and this whole theology? And what kind of biblical research or any kind of research, really, did you have to undertake to fasten this whole universe? It was a challenge because, you know, one of the things that I did not want to do was write about a cult. Um, I felt like that would have been easy enough and not as compelling. So I wanted to make it a religion. And the the other religions that have come out of the Hebrew Bible have done fairly well for themselves. There's Christianity, there's Islam, and they are so firmly rooted in this first text, this Ur text, that they um, secure an extraordinary amount of legitimacy through that borrowing. And I just mimicked that. 
because I wanted my religion to have the same sort of legitimacy, a kind of rootedness. So that was basically the the, the simple um, answer um, as I was searching through the Bible. The kind of research that I did was, you know, I read the Bible um, and I read some ancillary research stuff, some contemporary theology on um, the the uh, conflict between the Amalekites and the Israelites. Um, and I read quite a lot of theology and um, social history. Are you yourself um, Jewish? I'm not. What was the religious, if any, uh, context in which you were uh, raised? Well, um, we went to a lot of different denominations. When I was a kid, I started to joke with my mom that we had... Uh, multiple denomination syndrome, because we just seem to go from one Christian organization to the next. And you have echoes of that notion of sort of searching within the book. You have a character who Paul meets, this guy named Bill Mercer, who describes going to all sorts of religions, sort of seeking, seeking some kind of answer, some kind of spiritual uh, edification. This was a book that was really intended to be an outsider's take on religious envy in a way. The creation of this religion was really meant to mirror in a, in a, it was meant to parody Judaism so that it could present to um, Paul O'Rourke an opportunity that he feels he's been denied by his birthright. And all that, that was basically in a, in a very personal way, a, uh, kind of metaphorical treatment of my own relationship to Judaism. Because as a non-Jew, I would look into my friends' families, for instance, and the rituals that they enjoyed on a Friday night or at Hillel or during the high holidays. And I found something that because I had my mom had moved us around a lot and also because Christianity as I was taught, it was simply an, an announcement of a belief. It wasn't a practice. What I found in Judaism was um, a kind of heterodoxy, a, a, a practice that um, went far beyond a statement of belief. And that, that engagement, that weekly engagement and daily engagement was because I was so far out of it, extremely enticing. And I found the opportunity to sort of fall into such a rich tradition that had laid out historically over many centuries exactly what would provide any individual who came along in this in, in, in time uh, a kind of pre-established set of, of um connections to other people, to the world, to history, to um, events in time, all sorts of things that I simply missed out on. So it was really an attempt to show what it's like to be uh, a non-Jew looking in at the rich customs and traditions of Judaism. Lest our readers think that this book is only uh, about existential crises and big theological issues. I also should say it's hilarious. At times, it's absurd almost. Uh, I was laughing out loud. It's sometimes very droll. Paul is a very petulant figure. uh, And that, I think, leads to some 
very funny scenarios. And I'd love it if you would read a passage for us. Yeah, you bet. It's a pretty self-explanatory passage, so I'm not even going to ask you to set it up. Okay. My last patient of the day was a marketing executive with three cavities in need of filling. I conveyed that information to him and then was called away momentarily. When I returned, the marketing executive said, I don't think I'm going to have them filled. His x-rays were still on screen. He could see his cavities as well as anyone. I looked again at his chart. He was well insured. There was no financial reason not to have his cavities filled. And I took it on faith that oral upkeep was at least of some concern to him. Otherwise, he would not have made the appointment. Okay, I said. But I do strongly recommend having those cavities filled at some point. They're just going to get worse over time. He nodded. I said, is it the pain you're worried about? He looked puzzled. It's not painful to have a cavity filled, is it? No, I said. That's why I ask. It's not painful at all. We numb you. That's what I thought, he said. No, it's not the pain. So just out of curiosity, I said, if it's not the pain, why not have them filled? They're just going to get worse over time, and then you really will be in pain. Because I feel fine right now, he said. I don't feel like I have any cavities. But you do have cavities, I said. I just showed you where your cavities are. Look, they're right here. I started to show him a second time. You don't have to show me again, he said. I saw them the first time. I believe you. So if you believe me and you see there's a problem, why not get it fixed? You have three cavities. Because I don't feel like I have them. You don't feel like you have them? I don't feel like I have them, he said. I was growing a little frustrated. Okay, I said, but indulge me for a moment. Look here at the screen. Do you see the areas in shadow? One, two, three, three cavities. According to your x-rays, he said, and that's fine, but I'm just telling you how I feel. How you feel? Right now, I just don't feel like I have any cavities. I feel fine. But cavities aren't something you always feel. That's why we take the x-rays, to show you what you can't feel. That might be your way, he said, and that's fine, but it's not my way. Not your way, I said. They're x-rays. They're everyone's way. They're science's way. And that's fine, he said, but my way is how I feel, and right now I feel fine. Then why did you come in? If you feel so fine and you don't care what the x-rays say, why come in? Because, he said, you're supposed to. Every six months, you're supposed to see the dentist. I just think that is so hilarious, but it's also so uh, brilliant in how it's a metaphor for belief versus rationality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, there's, a, there's a, a, a firm current, I think, going through the, through the culture right now where right or wrong is not really the question. It's really about what your point of view is, um, what you, how you feel. And really like these large questions of not only morality, but actually fact-based questions can just simply be dismissed because it doesn't happen to, to be your, you know, part of your worldview. And I, I find it maddening, but it's also something that we're having to learn how to deal with a little bit more because it's so pervasive. Well, and beyond maddening, it's completely self-destructive. Yeah, well, this poor guy's going to have trouble. Yeah. <laughs> to put it mildly, uh, Paul is a huge baseball fan. He's a Red Sox fan. What made you decide to make Paul a fan of baseball and of the Red Sox? Well, it's a very uh, facile comparison, but I thought that in some ways 
uh, the Red Sox were to baseball what Judaism was to religion. So that at a certain point, they, they had lost for 86 years, and then they got the, this terrific world, world championship. And in the same way, the Jews had been out of uh, you know, uh, Zion for years, and finally the state of Israel comes along, and, and uh, they're triumphant. And So I just saw some parallels. I mean, he wants to belong to something, and when he finally gets this championship, he's just destroyed from the inside out. And so in some ways, I was playing around with the religiosity of baseball. Twitter, Facebook, social media, chat rooms, they all play a big role in your book because Paul figures out that he's being impersonated online. There's a website put up in his name. He has Facebook and Twitter pages, which are in his name, though he himself is not administering them, and he can't figure out who's doing it. I was recently on Twitter. I'm on Twitter a fair amount. And I was tweeting lines from your book that I thought were particularly great. A couple of weeks after I did that, I got a tweet from the actress Sarah Jessica Parker. And she wanted to chat or tweet about your book. She loved it. She'd read it and she'd loved it. Uh, Did you know that she was a fan? I didn't know. Until now? Well, no. um, It was the tweet heard around my world. (laughs) Um, I did hear shortly thereafter from my agent who was uh, following your exchange with her. So that was cool. If you were to cast this book, would she make the cut? Uh, she would make the cut for a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of my books. Every book that I have, she makes the cut. Let's just put it Let that it be, way. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tweet that. Yeah. <laughs> Josh Ferris, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Sarah. Joshua Ferris is the author of To Rise Again in a Decent Hour. It's just out from Little Brown. It's terrific. Go get yourself a copy. Get one for your dentist. If you liked our conversation, go ahead, share it. Be sure also to subscribe to Vox Tablet on iTunes or any other podcast browser. That way you will never miss a single episode. Our podcast is produced by Julie Subrin. We had extra help today from our great engineer, Paul Ruest. I'm Sarah Ivry. Thank you for listening.